Let's pray. Father, uh, speak to us now through the scriptures and the, the promises that they hold out to us. Show us Jesus, his power, uh, not only the days he walked the earth, but his power today to do good to us, to bring us to know you and to have life in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This is a sermon about death and God. It may be tricky to keep this light, I'm afraid. But these are the readings. All our readings make reference to tears and death. In Isaiah 25, verse 7, death is the shroud that enfolds all people, the sheet that covers all nations. Death as a shroud separates us from one another. It confines and constricts us. It enfolds us, covers our faces. In John eleven thirty eight, 38, death means the tomb, means a cave with a stone rolled across the entrance. Death removes us from the sun, the air, the living. It's darkness, it's stillness, it's a blocked way, a heavy stone. Death means tears. Mary weeps over the death of her brother, brother Lazarus. And when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along also with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Death brings tears. I mean, if we were trying to be rational about death, we might say, look... It is a natural inevitability, and it could come at any time, so we shouldn't be surprised when it does. And, you know, if the dead know nothing good, at least they know nothing bad either. Death, you know, it makes a way for others to come and enjoy life. Death spurs us on to savour life and live deliberately. We might say these things to ourselves and one another, but the trouble is we're bound up in one another. As John Donne famously wrote long ago, no man is an island entire of itself. Every man is a piece of the continent, a part of the main. Any man's death diminishes me because I am involved in mankind and therefore never send to know for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for thee. Of course, when we do know and we love the one for whom the bell tolls, we are moved, we are troubled, we are grieved. We lose something of ourselves, sometimes a very big something of ourselves. And we think of all that those who have died have lost and tears fall. And we might say, is that it? We come into the light of life, blooming, rejoicing, delighting, and life and the living kind of pass on. They pass away from us and from our circle of friends, and death and the dying increasingly surround us till that death is ours. Is that all we can say? Who or what might help us in this situation? Well, if God is the living one, the giver of life, the Lord of Lords, the Almighty, he might help. Will he help? Has he helped? Isaiah says that he will help. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast, 
of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all people, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from the earth. The Lord has spoken. John also says God will help here. From our New Testament reading, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. And there is this promise, this hope that God will act, God will, will undo death, he will swallow it up, he will wipe it away. But Mary, in that New Testament reading, thought, well, Jesus could have at least have prevented her brother's death for a time. What's her reproach to him? Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And she and others find Jesus a disappointment in this situation. Some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? And yet he didn't. And Mary and her sister Martha and her brother Lazarus were friends of Jesus. And if Jesus the healer had not been there in time to heal his friend, how much worth is he? And at first Jesus seems as helpless and as distressed as everyone else. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. And the Jews said, see how he loved him. But once we get to the tomb, Jesus does not behave like an ordinary mourner. An ordinary mourner might look at that stone, might touch the stone, might throw themselves on the stone and weep. But they wouldn't command the stone be rolled away. They know what's the point. But Jesus wants the tomb opened. Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odour, for he has been there four days. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? And so God The living one, the giver of life, shows a sign of his glory by a foretaste of the defeat and the undoing of death. They took away the stone and then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth round his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. And then the narrator stops telling the story and we're left to imagine what happens now. The shock, the disbelief, the wonder, the joy and astonishment, the confusion and dread, the elation, the embraces that followed. In place of death, there is life. In place of grief, there is the renewal of love. 
It is a sighting of the glory of God. But it was only a sighting, only a glimpse. This tomb-opening, life-restoring glory was just a quickly dissolving taste of the full and proper undoing of death. For Lazarus went on to die again. And he was wrapped again in those strips of linen. And what happened to him has not kept happening anyway. How many tombs do you know that have been opened up and people have come out lately? All of us, saints and sinners, we go marching in, don't we? Marching into our grave. And we're heard of no more. Well, all but one. Because when the stone was taken from Jesus' tomb... Not long after this incident with Lazarus, and when Peter and John found the strips of linen that had wrapped Jesus' body lying there, they did not find Jesus there. He was not there. And having come out of his tomb that Easter day, he never went back. He never needed grave clothes again. Because he is the resurrection and the life. He ascended to heaven. He is at God's right hand. But where is this, you say? We can't see him. His body is as hidden from us now as if it were buried in a tomb. And yet his resurrection has left its mark on history, that those close to Jesus were gripped by the implausible, unexpected notion that he had risen bodily from the dead. And those first believers were able to widen the circle of those who believed in these unprecedented things. The resurrection, a renewed bodily life beyond the reach of death. And the circle of believers has continued to widen because there is a quality to the evidence for the resurrection that still convinces. There is a spiritual power in the movement that this resurrection started that goes on, that lives It's a hope-kindling, life-changing, courage-giving, comfort-bringing reality. Now, perhaps you have a different creed. You know, you believe that what you see in this life is what you get, that the dead don't rise, that the source of the universe and all the life it carries in it is not God, it's not anything, it's a nothing. Makes no claims and offers no promises. We come, we go. Beyond our brief cares, it means nothing. We carry the torch of life for a day, we pass it on and go into darkness. There's a kind of bleak grandeur in that creed, in that faith with its final indifference. But we're all here in church and it's All Saints Day. So let's think about the grandeur of God's plan, his partly executed plan, a promise that we will get what we do not see, the resurrection from the dead. A promise that the one who is the source of all things, the world and its life, will transform the order of the world to to destroy and defeat death, to make all things new and to wipe away tears, to end with love and not oblivion. There is a grandeur in that creed, that faith, with its vision of the saints marching into the new Jerusalem, alive, 
full of joy and gladness, beholding the glory of God after a long earthly pilgrimage where it was only an object of faith and hope. There's no other way to live in the world except by faith, faith in some creed or other, materialist or spiritual, Christian, atheist or something else. Can I commend to you faith in Jesus, who called Lazarus out of the grave, whose tomb was found empty on the third day and never filled again, who said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? Let's pray. Father, lift our eyes to behold things we do not see and cannot yet see, but that you show to us in the scriptures, in the promises of the prophets and apostles that come from you, in the deeds of Jesus, calling Lazarus from his tomb. Lord, plant in our hearts the seed of faith and hope in your promise that you will swallow up death forever and that together all your saints will come into the new Jerusalem where you dwell with your people, where you wipe every tear away, where the old order of things has passed away and everything is new. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.